Hello, fellow griever. You have found the Leftover Pieces Suicide Lost Conversations podcast, and I am Alyssa, your host. I am with you on this journey because my 21-year-old son, Alex, died by suicide on August 7th of 2016. Since launching this podcast in late 2020, I have followed my heart and expanded the leftover pieces to include books and an online community where I host Zoom support groups every week. It is there in this community that I lead other parents who have lost a child by suicide from survival toward hope and into healing. The website is also a resource hub, a connecting point for all survivors of suicide loss. You can find me, ways to connect with me, and links to everything that I'm doing in the community on my website, theleftoverpieces.com. Know that I'm always open to suggestions and feedback. And if you know someone that I should connect with to be on the podcast, please let me know that as well. So now, I invite you to join me for real conversations, candid talk on hard topics surrounding the loss of our loved ones by suicide. I talk to other lost survivors, mental health experts, advocates, and on alternate weeks, I offer shorter solo episodes where I go down the rabbit hole to discuss things that have been on my mind or possibly parts of my journey that I feel would be beneficial to share. Every week, we explore the questions that haunt us, seek the courage to uncover the healing tools within us, and offer the comfort of a community that we all need so very much. It's true that our hearts and lives have been shattered, but come along with me, and together, let's choose to find meaning and even happiness amid the leftover pieces before us. Welcome. Hello, fellow grievers. If you're listening today, you're listening to Season 4, Episode 3 of the Leftover Pieces Suicide Loss Conversations Podcast, and I'm Melissa, your host. Today, I'm sharing a very poignant chat I had recently with award-winning author A.S. King. A.S. King, or Amy, as I'll refer to her in much of this interview, is an author for young people. She is the proud recipient of the 2022 Margaret A. Edwards Award, which recognizes an author's work in helping adolescents become aware of themselves and addressing questions about their role and importance in relationships, society, and in the world. Amy is a faculty member of the Writing for Children and Young Adults MFA program at the Vermont College of Fine Arts, and she spends many months of her year traveling the world, speaking to high school students, university students, educators, and just humans in general who care about the mental health of young people. After more than a decade of living self-sufficiently and teaching literacy to young adults in Ireland, she now resides in the U.S. in Pennsylvania. And I say all of this to also say 
that she's an honest, passionate, educated, grief-stricken mom who's still standing, even after losing her beautiful, amazing, smart, talented daughter, Gracie, to suicide in December of 2018. Amy's approach to talking about topics that are hard is much like mine, grievers. So you're going to hear us have a lot of very candid, open conversation about the immense need for trauma-informed people in our world. You'll hear us talking very frankly about what's normal and what isn't normal about how things are stigmatized and viewed in our world, from banned books to banned mental health care initiatives and beyond. Where are we getting all this wrong? And the current climate we have only seems to be making it worse. We talk about where we both really stand on the term suicide prevention, what it means and what it should mean. We talk about teenagers, or rather she talks about them a lot. I agree with her, but she spends a lot of time where her passion is, which is talking about teens as people and how we need to respect them and not just label them. And before we wrap things up, we also address her grief as a mother and what that looks like now versus what it looked like in the first few years. And really, there's just way too much to our conversation for me to try to put too many more bullet points on it here. So I'm just going to dive right in and let's get started. Thanks for listening. Hi, welcome, Amy. I'm so, so glad to have you on the podcast today. Hi, Melissa. I can't tell you how nice it is to be in a place where I can discuss this sort of stuff openly. It's so, it's a blessing. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'm so sorry for the reason that that you need the platform, but I'm honored to be able to give it to you. So I'm going to ask you to start the same way I ask everyone to, which is sharing with my listeners your lost story. Okay. I lost my daughter, Gracie, in December of 2018. She was just 16. She had just turned 16 about two weeks prior. She was a genius musician, absolute hoot of a person, so caring, so loving, lovely person, had struggled a long time. And so on Saturday morning, she'd come out of inpatient. We can talk a little bit more about that part of the journey, but she'd come out of inpatient about 10 days prior, maybe. And we were having, we had a good eye on her had a good chats with her, things like this. And, but she was going to go into school that morning and fulfill her role as a stage crew member. And she never came home. And I went to do something. I was elsewhere, just up in a different county and my phone was off. And so I, by the time I found out, I was probably 45 to minutes to an hour after all of it had kind of happened. She was taken to the hospital. And so she's, she was resuscitated and she was in the hospital for probably 24 hours. But within a few hours, we knew that she wasn't going to survive. And so that Saturday afternoon, later in the afternoon, we met with the organ donation people and started that process. That's just a weird way to put it, but 
It was a strange way to go home on a Saturday night, having signed those papers and to even leave. I mean, to leave was so foreign. But then, yeah, then the next day she died in our arms in the afternoon. And yeah, it was not something, it was something we knew could happen because she really struggled a long time with major depressive disorder, psychosis and other things because she was young. They couldn't truly diagnose her, but you know, we have, we've had some chats and I've had some chats with her therapist and she was really heading toward bipolar. And that ran in, in, in my ex-husband's family too. And not to put that's not necessarily doesn't go to a bloodline, doesn't matter, but it had been something that occurred for sure. And that, that people in the family had experienced. So it seemed to match that, but yeah, that was, you know, and our life forever changed for two weeks. We slept on in the living room. I don't think there was a night we didn't have a fire that summer or that winter because we just kept thinking that if we lit the fire, she always loved having the fire lit when she'd come home from band or other things, but life forever changed for her sibling and all of us and my whole family. It has certainly affected my family. The secondary losses were, and tertiary losses have been giant, but we adjusted, I guess, or we're adjusting, I guess. Is that what you do? Do we adjust, Melissa? Is that what we do? We we do adjust, I guess, on some level, but you're right. The words are difficult after this kind of a loss. And I just wrote notes the other day for an episode I'm going to record on talking about adjusting, how I'm ready to address the idea that it's that of adjustment, but it's that I have carefully curated a life that is safe for me to exist in now that is a place that I can succeed and thrive, but make no bones about it. It's been carefully curated to be one that I can do that in. It's not probably the traditional model that a lot of people would find success, whatever they want to term that in. And it definitely looks different because it, I mean, I directly curated it because, and not even on purpose, it became something I had to do in order to survive this. So yes, we do figure out how to do that, but it's out of necessity. Yeah, no, absolutely true. I was, I had group last night. I run a a suicide loss survivor group in my area and through mental health America, we needed one. The pandemic of course happened soon after, right? So, and that changed a lot of the support groups, a lot of the resources and communities. And in our community, a very long, wonderful group, which was, I mean, the man who did it for years, beautiful guy, but it was just sort of, it was time, you know, it was just time. So they needed another one. And I said, okay, I can do that. And, but we were in group last night and we were talking about how things had changed and just sort of that I said, what I said was, does anybody else feel, I said, do you know what the term trauma informed means, right? And in medical and in a lot of places we're talking about, like doctors should be trauma informed because so many of us have trauma. And because I work with young people and I talk about trauma with young people and I look at a lot of statistics about trauma and stuff. I know that the portion of adults who are reporting that they'd had trauma in their childhood. So there's a lot of people. So everybody should really be trauma informed. I was talking about things like I'm like gynecologists should absolutely be trauma informed because that's a weird place to be. (laughs) Like it just is what it is. Right. But I said, I'm finding that since I lost Gracie, I want like, I want mechanics to be trauma informed. I want the person at the grocery store to be trauma informed, which really just means I need compassion. I require compassion. And, And they're 
you know, called a car dealership the other day and the person was, she was look, she's just picking up the phone. Like I, I don't, I'm not expecting, you know, my expectations aren't that high of other people, but compassion is sort of like a low bar, but whatever. But she kind of, hello, blah, 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 blah. And what I said was, can you connect me with someone who's excited to sell me a car today? Was the best I could do to just try and sort of explain, this is what I need. I need someone who's nice. And I need someone who's not going to try and screw me over because my problem is now when I try and stick up for myself, mama bear comes out and I don't get angry. I look incredibly assertive, but what happens is I intimidate the crap out of people because I'm assertive and they don't know what to do with that. And an assertive bereaved mother, you want to watch your back. You want to right. watch your back with an assertive bereaved mother. But I like the idea of a carefully curated environment. It's absolutely true. I mean, there's so only so many things we can control, but I do everything I can to curate my space too. I totally understand that. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you talk about what you just did with how we need a trauma-informed society, but yet the irony, and I think that leads into some of what you and I want to talk about, is the irony is we seem to be going backwards in our society. It seems like kind people are fewer and far between. It seems like we've unleashed an entire faction of humanity that is not only not a compassionate, but they're angry. And, you know, we're encountering that a lot. But, you know, in talking about stigma and suicide education and the things that I want you to address, because if you want to talk a little bit about how you even got from December 2018, and I know you were you were talking to teens and things before you lost Gracie. So, but then did you take a break or just kind of Kind of take this and dive in, Amy, and see where this fits with you, because I know that's what we want to spend the bulk of our time talking about is yeah. is stigma and youth and things like that. Yeah. All right. So the best way to figure me out is I'm a weirdo. Let's just start there. So and uh, so I took that weirdo nature and I've been writing novels for 28 years. So I write novels. I was living in Ireland for a long time. Eventually I ended up in, in America. In Ireland, I was working, I was always volunteering in my life. I love volunteering and I was teaching adults how to read in Ireland, things like this. But when I came back to the States, I finally got published and I got published in what they call YA, young adult literature. I tend to write I don't know how to explain it. Crossover books. That's what the New York Times calls me. So it's my whole point in writing these books was always to help adults understand teenagers better and also help teenagers understand adults better. The idea is to stop the thing that has has been woven into our society since about 1950, which is a terrible attitude toward teenagers. In fact, this culture is openly encouraged to bully teenagers and I'm done with it. I'm just done. And so what I do is I go into schools and a lot of people would think, oh, you go into schools and you talk about your books. No, I don't. They think I'm going to, but why do I will talk about writing and I will talk about how I got here and what it takes to become an author and this sort of thing. But mostly I talk about trauma and I talk about the trauma that the society hands them without anything else. That's honestly the minute they like a thing, society has to make fun of it. If it's a teenage girl, the minute she likes a thing, it's stupid. It's, you know, all of this sort of stuff. It's constant. And I often say to audiences, 
of high school students. I'll say, do you remember when you were four and you fell over and your mom said, oh my God, are you okay? How's your knee? Are you all right? Add 10 years, you trip over your own, you trip the same way. And they're like, hurry up, get off the floor, get in the car, we're going to the dentist, we're going to be late. And I'm like, where did that come from? You know, it's kind of goes generation to generation, right? So now we're in generation, I guess, technically, we're now birthing generation 16 of America. My child is in generation 15. I'm a 13. I'm a generation Xer. But we've all heard this, like, shut up, stop your, you know, put your bitch in, you know, deal with it, you know, move forward. And that's great. However, our trauma is growing because it's intergenerational. We get trauma from we get trauma from our family, from our bloodline. We get tra- trauma from what happened to our parents. We get trauma from what happened to our culture. We get trauma from the soil. We get trauma from our history. And we get trauma from lies about our history, too. So it's kind of interesting that we're in the position we're in right now, because what I just described is something that we're seeing on the news more and more. We're having people who are coming and trying to ban books. I'm somebody who's talked about intellectual freedom, again, for 10 or more years. So it's not like I just am reacting to what's happening now. The same as when I go into schools and talk about trauma, it's not because of the pandemic. It's not because of I lost my daughter. It's because I also had trauma as a kid. And more importantly, I want to help young people reach the actual potential that they have and not be so scared to talk about what really happened to them. One of the things I find is that let's say someone writes a book and the rape is in it. Well, they'll get a letter from a concerned parent or teacher that says, oh, no children should, you know, no young adult should read about rape. That said, one in three or one in four or three have already experienced rape. What are they supposed to do? Not talk to anyone about it because it makes you uncomfortable? And that's where we start getting into who's really uncomfortable with the topics that are in books or in schools or in with the truth, period, of our history, which is absolutely documented and proven. Like, And it's not the kids. It's adults. And What's interesting about that is that it has a massive bridge to mental health. And that's where my biggest issue is. I'm going into those schools long before now, long before these strange new kind of school board meetings that we're hearing about now. And I was going to schools talking about this stuff a long time ago. Now it's even harder because you're having people, the same people who want to ban a book, want to now ban mental health screenings. They want to ban any mental health education. They refuse any mental health first aid training for their staff and teachers in the school. There seems to, and then there's a term that I heard when someone was arguing about books at a school board meeting in a local school board or local school district, the term, you know, the normalizing, they don't want to normalize being gay in the book. So the books make it normal. They don't want to normalize being educated about the history of the United States and especially the plight of African-Americans or people of color or immigrants. They don't want to, we don't want to normalize that. They also don't want to normalize suicide. And that stopped me in my tracks. Normalize, I'm sorry, suicide's always been around. Can we just start there? But it's getting way bigger. And nope, it wasn't the pandemic. It was getting bigger before the pandemic. It's it's the number, mental illness is the number one disease killing school age kids. And so because I talked to a lot of teachers, librarians, because I don't talk about this with kids. Now, mind you, I don't talk about suicide with kids because, well, it would be irresponsible and it would be, it wouldn't be okay. In fact, when Gracie died, the therapists that were brought into the school to talk to her friends who knew she died by suicide were not allowed to say the word suicide. That's the type of world we're living in. Okay. They were overly concerned with legal issues. You know, Gracie did die in the school. 
And I guess, you know, and I'd said to them, look, I'm <laughs> like, it's not going to happen. But I understand that the district's lawyers and I don't know the details and I wasn't supposed to know the details. But what I know is that those kids were so cross and so upset that they were almost immediately being told to be ashamed of their friend who yeah. had loved them and helped them because these people refused to say the word suicide. Now, suicide is normal in society. In fact, I was just looking at those really cool. I'm sure you've looked at the poll. Give me a second. It's called the wrong thing. Sorry. The Harris poll, the public perception of mental health and suicide prevention survey. The results came in August, 2020. But what was interesting about it is that how many people, one in four people, know somebody who, let me get my stats right because it's right in front of me. One in four people has personally thought about or attempted suicide. And as of 2018, approximately one in four adults have personally thought about or attempted suicide. And over half, 55%, know someone who has had suicidal thoughts or behaviors. And so with that in mind, I cannot understand why anybody right, is rallying against mental health services, or especially in schools when we're losing 10-year-olds. I mean, I was in a group for a while there for moms, and the more, like every week, there were more and more 10 and 11-year-olds. You guys, these are fourth and fifth graders who are losing their friends to suicide. Why would anybody come into the school and be like, let's not talk about it. This is ridiculous. What I've heard is that basically it's only the families that only the families of course, they blame the families. And this is where you and I will get into what the stigma really mm-hmm. comes from and where this idea of prevention can be a little bit touchy for survivors. But they, somebody was arguing at one of our school board meetings. This is when the mask mandates were kind of the main, you know, the du jour, the subject du jour. It was, oh, well, the mask for making my child feel suicidal. Oh, don't worry. We, she, you know, she didn't really mean it. We talked to our children. Uh-huh. And like, I'll tell you what, I was blue in the face talking to Gracie, <laughs> like, but it's just amazing those perceptions people have about suicide survivors, about the families, you know, and again, I sit with families. Last night I sat with people who lost and they're beautiful people. They come from beautiful families. It just is a thing and it is normal. And you know what? The only reason people think that so-and-so is normalizing or that's a bad thing it's only because it hasn't happened to their family or a family of someone whom they actually care about, right, right, yet. And I think you and I talked about this when we first touched base, you know. I mean, it was at Gracie's funeral. I found out that two of my relatives lost their fathers to suicide, but they didn't tell me until Gracie died. Before yeah, I thought it was cancer. I had a great uncle, great uncle. Yeah. Great uncle. I had to think of what his relationship to me really was. It was my grandfather's brother. And Never once had I thought about the fact that I knew anyone that had ended their life or taken their life by suicide, because that was never the term that was used that they would never talk about. It was given a completely different connotation. They talked an awful lot about his alcohol use. They talked an awful lot about his, you know, but it was just so unbelievable that all they wanted to talk about was just 
that he was some sort of fall down drunk and it was never discussed as a suicide and talking about, you know, normalizing suicide. I talk about normalizing suicide and normalizing grief. And I get those sideways looks all the time (laughs) because again, the stigma is perpetuated by the fact that we believe just talking about them somehow is going to make them worse. I just did an episode, solo episode on implicit bias because Implicit bias ruins a lot of, it's a lot of the culprit of this secondary and tertiary loss that you talk about. But what I was challenging my listeners to do was to not just point the finger outward and look at at the fact that, you know, it's the whole idea that 80% of everything that we do is controlled by our subconscious, our unconscious mind, only about 10 to 20% of everything we do think and behave is coming from conscious thought. And so if we're not willing to be responsible enough to look into the subconscious and the thoughts that we, you know, don't, aren't coherently responsible for, that's, there's a fault on us too. And so in order to be able to hold somebody else accountable to bring their implicit biases forward to be, to match their explicit, because a lot of times people's explicit doesn't match their insides, don't match their outside, so to speak. And if we don't hold people accountable to that, but then we're never going to change, but it has to start with us. And so many suicide loss grievers don't realize that they're still struggling with their own implicit bias. Absolutely. You mean specific implicit bias towards suicide at that point. Towards suicide, towards the type of people that in their life towards, and now they've suddenly lost their child. I'll just put child because for the sake of our conversation, that's what we're talking about. They don't, I mean, I know moms that and no judgment at all, but that it took two years to even say, that their child was dead, let alone say they couldn't even say they ended their life, let alone suicide. I mean, they would say she left or something like that. And I think to myself, oh, because it breaks my heart for them because it means that they're still living in the shame blame game. Right. I mean, that's the thing, right? You get into that place where look, the number one, I just, I tweeted about this, I don't know, six months ago, but my son came to me and said, oh, that his friend had been talking to his parents. And actually it was a joke. I think we talked about this. There was a joke. Nirvana was playing, right? A Nirvana song. So dad was playing a Nirvana song. They were doing something with the kid, kids 15. And the kid comments something about the song. I don't like this one as much. Can we skip it? And parents said, yeah, you know, he should have killed himself earlier. The kid says, you shouldn't say that's a terrible thing to say. Parent doesn't either does or doesn't know the kid knows my kid who's a survivor, right? Of his sister's death. That's pretty big, right? And then the dad just said, look, something like, and I had the, I had a pretty verbatim on the tweet, but it's something like, look, that's a weak person, you know, and selfish. It's weak and selfish. And that's what this 15-year-old was just told only six months ago. And what's interesting about that is it's not stopping. And that's because we just keep passing it on because we don't know what else to say. And so in that thread on, on Twitter, you know, I did say, this is what you say. You say, that must be so terrible. That's a terrible loss, but a terrible thing to happen to a family. That's terrible. You must respect that family. It's that simple. You respect it instead of the opposite, which is what I find. I mean, the blame comes immediately. Everybody, and this is where that prevent, you know, that preventability kind of idea comes in. You know, I I used to have a very judgmental family member. Actually, no, that's a lie. I still have that judgmental family member. They're just not in my life anymore. <laughs> so so you've just realigned your boundaries. That's You're right. all. But I used to often say to my ex-husband and other people, like, if I would ever get cancer. 
don't tell this family member. And eventually somebody asked why. And I'm like, because they're just going to say that it was because I smoked for a little while or because I did this or because they were always going to find the reason why it was my fault I had cancer or fill in the blank. Let's be fair. It doesn't matter what comes after it. It wouldn't matter. And I realized this because I grew up with this person and they had always blamed me for everything. And in fact, told me that I was to blame for everything that was wrong with everything. So apparently I'm the reason for all things in case you were looking, Melissa. But <laughs> I'll remember that. I'm making a yeah, note about that, Amy. Do. If anything bad happens this week, you just curse me. <laughs> I'm sure Amy's um, to blame. Yeah. It's all my fault. But that's the thing, you know, immediately that's the first thing people really go to is the family wasn't this. And, you know, no family is perfect, but you know, very few families are murderous. Let's be fair. You know, like we're not, it's not like that. And if only people understood, you know, and I think like people around me were like, hold on, like that kid was amazing. She was so beautiful. She was so great. And this is a great family and they know me and that, you know, and it was sort of like, maybe it made them stop and think, but we can't keep losing. Like that's not, my loss isn't somebody else's opportunity to become educated. It's time to actually start right. to explain to people that this idea of preventability is really, I use the word sexy. It is preventing suicide. That is so sexy. It's not <laughs> realistic. It's not realistic it's, at know, all. It's not realistic, but at the same time, it's not that I'm saying we can't, we can. And I asked somebody recently, I went to a, an educational sort of event run by Highmark. And there was a really great guy. He runs a prevention kind of, you know, organization. He lost a family member when he was young. So he's done this his whole life. He's seasoned. He's smart. He's great at what he does. And I didn't not, I didn't want to like come up against him, but I wanted to ask him seriously. How do you feel about the word prevention when you're talking to people who've lost? I'm a parent who's lost. That puts a responsibility on me that I already had because I was the child's parent and I did all I could. But the fact is, man, who expects to drop their kid off at school and then not have the child come out of school? This was a planned, very well thought out thing that my 16 year old was going to do no matter who was there. That's just how it goes. And I've talked to enough survivors where they either they didn't know anything was wrong or they did know and thought the child was safe or, you know, a million other things. But look, somebody who has a plan like this is going to look right in your eyes and say, no, I'm fine. And that's exactly what I heard in my kitchen, you know, that morning. What yeah. makes, you know, what to prevent a thing? I mean, that goes to, well, is lung cancer preventable? How many Americans would say yes to that? Because immediately they'd say, well, don't smoke. Yeah, there's plenty of people who die from lung cancer. Who never smoke. Young yeah. people who didn't have smoke. There's a million. You know, so how educated are you about lung cancer? If you're saying that, well, how educated are you about suicide? And I'm going to say that I don't think we're that educated about either. And I think that because we can't talk, we're now having more, more rules slapped on us about what we can talk about and what we can't talk about with young people in schools and in the curriculum. It's, it's just going to get worse. I mean, again, we're looking at 10, 10 and 11 year olds. And instead of having a school board meeting, which is a meeting of the community to work on the actual problem. Instead, you just have this politicized kind of climate where children are being used as currency. And in, in this case, children who we've lost, dead children, my, my child's being tossed, the name's being tossed around. Like this is a reason to ban books, or this is a reason to not talk about things. In fact, it's the opposite. It's the reason to talk about it. Uh, but, you know, I don't think, I don't think the climate of the now 
is a great is going to be great for learning. I don't think it's great for anything. At the moment, I'd actually just found out recently because this is the same group of people who are throwing around words like pedophile, pornographer, and groomer. They're throwing it around all the time. And I just found out recently that someone was throwing it around nearby, you know, somewhere near me. And they kept using it in a conversation with an actual school principal who finally had to say, do you know what that word means? And it turned out the parent didn't know what that word meant because they kept calling this teacher a pedophile. And they're like, stop saying that's not the case. So we're looking at a place that's so sensationalized now. And I know where this came from. And most people with eyeballs know where this came from. You know, we used to have an aisle politically where people could meet and talk and get on the same plane. You can't do that if one side of the aisle screaming pedophile at the other when nobody on the other side did anything to, to anybody. Right. It's just, it's a little bit, this is like a rodeo now. This is a little bit bonkers. And so- yeah. Well, it's a little bit like a rodeo that's been taken over by the clowns is what it's a little bit like because, yeah. So this will lead us into a place because I know we don't have the answer. I know we don't, but it's going to lead us into a discussion about it anyway, which is so, because I agree with you, it gets under lots and lots of my nerves to hear people talk about every suicide being preventable, especially when they have, in my opinion, the audacity to say that to a survivor because the implication is something beyond if they really realized what they were saying, would they say it again? You know, you feel like looking at them and saying, say that again, and then sit with it for a minute. Now look at me. Now, what'd you say? But I lost my train of thought, but (laughs) a prevention, but it's where society tells us we should be. And it just, it brings me to that point of, what do we do? Because I agree with you. We're in a very sad place in our society right now with feeling like we're going to make any true headway in the very near future. And that's why I work so, with children. So what, as I, I say, so what people. do we do, which leads me to the bit better word, which is education. Yeah. And I, like you, you know, my heart is pulled towards being a voice and then being there for surviving moms. But I know there are people like you, thankfully, and I, that's why I want to give a voice to people like you that are willing to go out there and do what I firmly believe in, which is educate young people. Because yeah. if we don't equip them with the right tools to live with, man, change, do whatever they need to do with their own health, mental or otherwise, then we're not doing the right thing. Yeah. And you know what? I'll tell you what the the number one tool is actually really simple. This is the best part about what I do, what I've learned in my now 10 years of going into high schools. The number one thing, whether it was before I lost Grace or after, the number one thing is that I'm approachable and I'm an adult. And I do somewhere in there because a lot of times people are like, oh, she must be 30 because of just how I'm acting or maybe how I'm dressed or just kind of me. And I'm like, oh, I'm 52. And so that means, oh, I'm older than their mom. Usually I'm older <laughs> than their mom. Right. And but then I say these wild things like, you know, things like 
did you know that the word teenager was only really brought into usage in the 1950s? Before that, y'all were people. Why do you think that they did that? Because they wanted to sell you crap you didn't need. What did your Instagram tell you to buy today? My Instagram seemed incredibly over-concerned with my neck wrinkles. And then we can get them laughing because they know, they've seen Instagram. They were told this morning that their acne was disgusting or something on Instagram. You know what I mean? And we get into the psychological. Like I'm like, I get into like how I now feel. Like sometimes now I look at my neck and this is how I feel. And, you know, we get into that, but more importantly, to explain to them that this terrible world, this world that they're growing up in, that they think is the most important, you know, is really just trying to sell them crap they don't need based on making them feel small. And so then I really get into what makes you feel small and things like this. What I find is that young people are absolutely willing and really want to talk about mental illness. This generation, especially this Gen Z, they want to talk about mental illness. They want to talk about depression. They want to diagnose each other every day, all the time, which parents are like, don't diagnose yourself. Don't stop reading that internet, you know, all this stuff because the internet is there. So they can Google these things. And at first I was the same way with Gracie. She was like, oh, I think my friend has, you know, (laughs) listed something. And I was like, whoa, like, you're not a psychologist. You don't know this. What I didn't know is that friend's parents wouldn't talk to him about his feelings. They wouldn't get him a therapist. They didn't. They yelled at him when he went to the guidance counselor the one time he did and that he was absolutely suicidal and very much on the edge and very much probably was on his way to do that. And it was my kid and his other friends, but my kid who stepped in and said, hey, no, you've got something going on in your brain. Let's talk about it. And she was able to, you know, to do this. I, on the outside, just looked, you know, it looked like this other thing. But Gen Z, Generation Z is absolutely open to having these conversations. The same as they they really, they they don't understand why everybody has a problem with their books. <laughs> I, I, I've been around the road. Well, with their in, books or with who they want to date or with exactly. what color their skin is or it. fill in the blank. They don't yeah. have a problem with all of that the way we do. And the adults, I, the adults have the problem. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent, which is why normalizing suicide it makes the same amount of sense that it does to, I mean, it sounds ridiculous to even say this out loud, but to normalize sex, think about when we were young, cause I'm the same age as you, I'm a got, I got a year on you yep. that it was such a bit. I mean, if you give out a condom, they're all going to go have sex. Well, right. here, let me get, let me tell you that they're all doing it anyway. That's why we have babies and Oh, why we had to legal, you know, Roe v. Wade, let's not go down that rabbit hole, but that's why we have, you know, that's why we had to, do that in the first place so that women weren't getting back alley hanger abortions. And because guess what? They were having sex even before condoms. (laughs) Human beings have been having sex since they crawled out of the ooze. They've been (laughs) killing themselves and each other since the dawn of man. These are not new problems. And Mm -hmm. so to treat them like they are and to treat the kids like they're, we're somehow going to protect them from this. It's ridiculous. It's and, and to not trust them with the ability to handle the information. Well, right. So what do you teach and how do you like go in at what age are you going into schools? Well, I mean, this is it. I'm not allowed to teach. I'm not, I shouldn't say not allowed. I have yet to, and this is where my foundation comes in, which I haven't founded yet, but I want to just go back to the last thing you said, we're talking about normalizing suicide or normalizing sex. We've normalized gun violence in this country. We've normalized it so much that, I mean, one of my, one novel I did write a while ago, one of the, one I get a lot of comments on is one that talks about the psychological side effects of school intruder drills. And so at the time they hadn't done any research. And I just assumed that kids were 
traumatized by this because of course they are. Because I watched my kids come home from when they were little and be like, oh, we got shoved into the bathroom. And, you know, this kid got stuck next to the toilet. Isn't that hilarious? Because they were in second grade. By the time sixth grade came, it was pretty quiet. It was like, oh, this happened today. Because, and you know, when I wrote that book, I had people, you know, talk, or when I interviewed, especially and talked about that book, I had a lot of adults, same age as me or a little bit older. They were like, oh, well, we used to hide under our desks for air raids. And I'm like, yeah, except you didn't see you didn't see on the news that night any towns being blown up. You know, these kids are seeing every day that their peers are being murdered in their schools. And this is the reason that they're hiding in their closet several times a year as a drill. And they also see how nonsensical that is, by the way, because every school shooter has already been to the drill. So they already know what's going to happen. I don't. But now it's an arm this and arm that all these different things. And again, without getting political. But saying that guns and all kinds of laws around guns in this country are a really big deal when it comes to suicide survivors. We need to figure out how to minimize this access. We don't have it because we've normalized gun violence, but we can't normalize suicide. It's very confusing. So how do we do it? And how I start with immediately talking about trauma and talking about feelings. I always immediately say, listen, do you have a trustworthy adult? First thing I do is I give them their trauma. I'm like, look, I work with a great many survivors of a great many things, which I have since I was 15. I've been a volunteer. So I've worked with all kinds of survivors of all different things in many countries. So I'm able to say to them, listen, when I look out at you guys, I see one in four, one in three, one in two, one in six. And I know that all of you have probably experienced something, even if you won't allow yourself to. And I say, you know, I'm, even if you're the kid driving the BMW and the brand new pair of kicks, that one thing that happened to you in fourth grade that still eats you up, that's not going to stop eating you up until you actually talk to somebody about it and face it and move through it, right? And so I give them that basic idea, which I don't think anyone ever, a lot of them, because they'll stay afterwards and be like, thank you. And then they just start telling me their trauma. And I, now I add this extra like thing. I'm like, you don't have to tell anybody today. That's <laughs> what I always say. <laughs> so you don't have to tell me today. Although I'm always, you know, I'm happy to listen. And, you know, this has earned me messages on all social media platforms from kids, you know, and, and I don't necessarily want to be in that position. It's a strange position to be in, but I've also been able to help kids. And it's wonderful that I can do that. When it comes to Little kids. I mean, right now I'm working on books to talk about community grief, not just my dog died, right? Because we've just lived through COVID. I want to remind people that a million people died, more than a million people died, which means there were X number of family members who lost somebody. And a, a good portion of those family members were young children. How do we explain it to them? How do we explain that, you know, well, why couldn't we have a funeral or whatever? And all those, all that grief. So that's more trauma that's now in our culture that we're ignoring. Yeah. You know how I know that? Because I was just in Dallas Fort Worth Airport. Nobody was wearing a mask. That's how I know that. You know, and people are still dying like 400, what was it? 400 a week. Like it's still a lot of people. So it's sort of interesting. Um, but I mean, how do we educate? We are open to talking about it. And the biggest thing I think is, you know, you said this thing about a carefully curated, like a safe space. And what I like to do is I like to say that inside my head, there's a safe space because I know that outside my head, there's not one. And I know that, you know, and that's just because of the work I do too, because I put myself out there and my job is essentially public. I am going to get letters from people who don't like me and who don't like what I'm talking about. And especially the very acrid people at this point who, you know, want to scream those same labels at me, though I do have my state and federal clearances that say, in fact, I am none of those things. But I have this safe space in my head that allows me to 
care about children and how they're doing. That's it. That's all it really is caring about children, how they're doing. And now teachers are like, oh God, I can't ask the child how they're doing because what if they tell me something's happening at home? Well, I have to report that. You know, there's so many different pieces of red tape. And so when we go back to it, we go back to family education. We go back to how do we help parents talk about this? Because when this happens in the community, I would like it to be dealt with differently than it happened than happened in mine. I don't know about yours, but I have a feeling we all have a similar story where suddenly the rumors start, suddenly the whispers start, suddenly no one can look you in the eye. Some suddenly, you know, the whatever organization in school that wants to, I don't know, put a scholarship together, they don't know which one they, they draw straws to figure out who's going to call you. And yet I'm the most approachable person in the world, but they don't want to talk to me because they don't know how to talk to me. Because I lost my kid and they don't know what to do about it. We don't do well with loss in this country, which is weird because everybody says death and taxes is the only thing you got to do. That's total bullshit. Just death. That's it. You don't have to pay your taxes if you don't want to. You can go to jail for it. That's fine. <laughs> but right. It's a choice. It's for sure a choice. Right. I know. I agree with you. Right. But we don't deal with death well, but we only deal with we only this idea of acceptable death. And so we go back to what you were talking about when it comes to that internalized stigma that we all walk with. I mean, I remember being young, very young and saying, yeah, suicide's selfish. And I think it's because somebody famous had died by suicide. And I was like, I liked them and I want them back. And it was that simple. And I've since like, when I lost Gracie, I had people in my family look straight at my face and blame me like straight at my face. And they also went to people at the funeral and told people that it was my fault. And that was complicated, interesting, but immediately very telling, not about me, but about them, incredibly telling. And I think that's one of the things that's been an interesting part of the growth after you lose a child to suicide specifically, is that you realize that I say this, you know how they say a drunk man says what a sober man thinks? You realize the thoughts that you were paranoid people had are definitely the thoughts people have. Like you kind of realize that that people are ill-equipped to deal with any of this and to be in any way helpful. The amount of people that said, oh, I've been through the same thing is bonkers. Like why would anybody approach a grieving parent and say, I've been through the same thing? My own sister sat on my couch. I hadn't, she was estranged from the family for years, hadn't talked to her in years, showed up after years of talking shit about me and sat on my couch, looked straight at me and said, oh, I was through this with both my kids. I'm like, what are you talking about? Your children are breathing. Like you are like you had all that time between when you found out and now to figure out what you were going to say to me. And the best you could come up with is a self-involved, self-centered statement like that. Wow. I am sorry that I am sorry for your loss because you have clearly lost your mind. And that's kind of where I'm coming from. I am a greatly compassionate person. I will not stop being one. And it is annoying to everyone around me. They're like, why are you not pissed at that person? I'm like, oh God. You know, and it's a classic, bless their heart. I mean, you're down the South, but it truly is. Bless well, I'm heart. not a Southerner, but I yes, know. that is what they do down here. <laughs> but, you know, but I really do mean it. Like I'm actually not even doing it smart ass style. I'm like, oh God, bless their heart. They are, they have a black heart. That is a shame for them. And there's nothing I can do about that heart. All you know, they can do is educate themselves and understand that you know what, if you're blaming the family, then if you're part of that family, you may not want to point so quickly at the family because you're part of it. Right. That's so strange. That's interesting in itself, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's so interesting. You were talking about something a minute ago, and it made me think about how we're treated as grievers. And we were just talking about this in the support. I lead a support group every week, at least one. And we were talking last night, and it's a, it's a, it's moms, mom support for children that have died by suicide. So it's very specific, and so everybody in there is in an extremely safe environment, and. One of the moms who's fairly new in her grief, February was when she lost her child, mm-hmm. was talking about wanting to put together a dresser to keep her child's stuff in, in a closet so she could visit it when she wants to. And somehow it evolved into a conversation about some of us giving her permission to just create a safe space, literally a physical safe space where she could grieve. And she likened it to Harry Potter and under the stairs, having a little space to go into that was just your own. And she said, I need a Harry Potter under the stairs. And I said, well, how about the closet that you currently have her stuff in? What if you just reimagined that space and it became a space where you could be a grieving mother feeling however you felt in that moment with your daughter's things present. And the grieving space became that safe space. And she was like, as we started to talk about this and unwind it, not one of us in the room thought any of it was anything beyond normal. She had the ability to pause and say, you have no idea how much, I mean, I'm paraphrasing her, but how much it means to me to be in a room where this idea seems normal. Yeah. And the idea that I could be an out loud griever who can sit and keen with my emotions And that feels normal because the rest of the world doesn't deem this as normal and it's a normal human behavior. And so that's what we're wanting to do. That's what I want to do with grief, but that's what we also have to be able to do with just the idea of suicide and mental health and mental illness. And until we normalize it, because you're not going to stop suicide. You're not going to stop murder. People that say 100% of all suicides are preventable or the people that are out there parading in some sort of, I don't know, parade, pretending like someday we're going to have zero death. And they're perfect. Clearly they're doing everything right. And that there'll is be no more biggest. suicides. Once I complete my mission, right. there'll it's, be no more murders and there'll right. be no more whatever. And there'll be, be no great. more cancer. Here's something I learned. Here's something I learned. And this is like having an insider track. It's kind of interesting. Here's what I learned when I go to schools, because don't forget, I go to schools that are as as divided as our nation is at this point. And I hear these kids whose parents don't believe in mental illness and they come and talk to me and they are very not okay. And they're not being sent to therapists and the therapists in the schools that they had in there are being removed by their parents coming to school board meetings and screaming and yelling and talking about how perfect their kids are and their kids aren't perfect at all. And what I hope from saying that aloud is that every single person who's ever judged or who's ever in front of their children said anything as irresponsible as, well, the reason that kid is fill in the blank, dead, addicted, is an abusive relationship. Anything that they believe is a choice or, you know, is preventable, gay, exactly, preventable, that whatever fills in that blank, they, every time they do that in front of their children, what they're really doing is educating their children of who they are. It's not educating their children of what to be. It is in a way until that child grows up, leaves and talks to some other people. The problem is that once their child goes and learns, that's fair enough. They can come back and talk to their parents. Your parents don't usually listen. They don't listen to kids and that's fine. So that's why my hopes, my hope is with the young people. My hope is with the fact that this generation, especially really does look at mental illness, does take it seriously. And, you know, that story I told you earlier about the person who joked about Kurt Cobain and whatever, you know, 
he did not listen to his child. We don't listen to our children. And this is the, and we especially don't listen to teenagers. And it's in every part of our culture. You know, it's, I was just talked down to the other day by someone in the child support office. I don't know if they have kids or not, but they're like, oh, well, teenagers are always this way. And I was like, no, that's not what I'm talking about, but whatever. We're constantly just repeating this garbage. And so, you know, for me, it's funny. You talk about your curated or your carefully curated space. You know, when I moved back to America, my carefully curated space included no television. I haven't watched a television show, television commercial or television news since I've been here. That's nearly 20 years. I refuse. I'll read transcripts. I go to BBC. I go to, you know, other places. I've been, you know, other places and I read news without bias. One of the things I'm finding as somebody who's lived in other countries is that this country is in real trouble when it comes to propaganda and not having stricter laws around that. You know, there's, I think it's Iceland. You're not even allowed to say, I think it's Iceland. I can't remember, but there's a European country where you can't even advertise to say, this is the best chocolate you'll ever eat. If you say that you get fined because you can't prove that it's the best. So it's not true. And here we've got it with facts, like actual facts of what happened today. And it's, again, we're going back to rodeo, but not a, a more of a danger rodeo versus a clown rodeo. And it's, you know, that is not ever going to, like, we're not in a climate where we can educate effectively, I think is what I'm trying to say to you, Melissa. We're not in a, a climate where we can educate adults effectively because adults, well, they do that thing. And this is one of the things I love telling kids, man, you, they grew up but they model growing up all wrong for you guys. So let me tell you what growing up really is. Don't leave your inner child behind. Do not abandon your inner teenager. Don't start rolling your eyes at teenagers because you turn 20 or because you have one. Start mm -hmm. to try and understand people. You're always trying, you're supposed to understand, ask them questions, ask them why they're being so whatever today. You know, my son tells me I'm just having an off day. I feel iffy. I'm like, great, go take a shower, do some pushups, do whatever it is you need to do. But like, you know, I do see, you know, I'm hoping that it just continues on this way. The hope is with, my hope's always with these kids, because again, I don't know what it's like to be shoved into a closet three times or four times a year to prepare for getting shot one day. I didn't have to go through that, but our kids did. And I think they're kind of eventually going to be pissed enough, with, then they're just going to kind of take over. Now, capitalism usually has feeds them into the machine before they can ever have that fire, right? That's where, I don't know. That's where I come in. I try and let them know that they can do whatever the heck they want. And this is kind of, kind of, it's weird, you know, it's a weird space. There's not, I don't know if this, yeah, we're not in a safe enough space to talk openly about suicide. If I did that in any local, any place, if I was like, hear ye, I got everybody to be quiet in the local pub or the local restaurant or anywhere, even though they know me and they may even respect my loss. If I tried to explain to them that, listen, this isn't preventable the way you think it is, but it's this and this, I, I think a bunch of them might nod and smile, but they'd go home and talk the back off me. And I think that's, that is a crazy competition. It's everything from, you know, my legs are skinnier than yours to, you know what I mean? I had this many children and don't I look great? And it's just, it's crazy how surface, shallow, vapid most people's existences are, and they're not going to really want to talk about suicide. It's, it's deep and it's heavy, but it's not, it's just a real thing. It's, it happens. So I don't know. It's, I know this went around in circles and we didn't come around to like, here's the solution, but there isn't one. Other than we have to yeah, offer that's, the education. You know? That's the point. There isn't a solution. And you said something that oh, I wanted to just circle back around to the idea that by saying, because I've said it and you've said it, and I don't want to give off the impression that 
by saying, I don't think suicide's preventable, that I don't care about suicide prevention. I just think I don't care about suicide prevention in the traditional way that people talk about suicide prevention, because I think like you, I believe education is prevention. I believe that postvention becomes prevention. I believe that being educated about how to, because here's the thing I am saying, I don't believe that even if we do get to a place that we have society willing to listen to this and try to fix some of these broken pieces in their brain that think all of these things that are wrong. Even if we got to that receptive place, let's hope that we do at some point, it still doesn't mean we're going to be able to eradicate suicide. It doesn't mean we're going to be able to eradicate homicide. Does that mean we should be able to turn the needle the other direction and have this not continue to become an increased way of dying? Absolutely. I think the more people or young people are in control as much as they can be with knowledge of how to handle their mental health when they aren't feeling well, the same as we, you know, especially us as a generation have been able to be more willing. Our mother's generation wouldn't have talked about their period or they wouldn't have talked about breast cancer because you have to talk about boobs and, you know, all the things that we now talk about. This generation will become more equipped, the children, to know that mental health is normal, meaning we talk about our mental health. Is it good? Is it bad? If it's bad and it's not the way it's been, what does that mean? Well, it means we might need to go see the doctor or fill in the blank, do push-ups, take a shower. But that it's not, it truly, we have to, the cliches of it's okay to not be okay needs to just become a thing, not a phrase, not a tagline that everybody throws around. It needs to just become a thing so that we can reduce the number of people that make the choice to end their life. Exactly. And, you know, I, there were, it was two things. I didn't finish one thought earlier, but I will say this too. It's one thing to say it's okay to be okay. And it's one thing for adults to say that to kids, write it into policy. If it's okay to be okay, how about when a kid goes into inpatient, they can actually not do their homework for two weeks. Imagine that. You can catch them up on class, but they don't have to do homework. When Gracie came out of inpatient, the amount of homework she had is part of the reason that she was so stressed. And when we cleaned out her things when she was dead, we sat in this very spot I'm sitting now and we went through boxes. And when I I have a photograph, there are three trash bags outside for the trash men to take. And it was all filled with homework. And I'm like, what does that algebra serve her now? How did this serve her now? I'm tired of getting letters uh, from the school districts for mental health days. Mental health days are a real thing, especially for my, it's a documented fact that my child needs those. So how about we actually back it up instead of just lip service saying it's okay to be okay as adults to young people. How about our school systems back it up. One of the coolest things that happened here in Pennsylvania that came a foundation that came from someone's loss was a group called Avitum and it's Latin for I've got your back. And we have it's one of the largest clubs in Pennsylvania and it is wonderful. It is a club that that really focuses on definitely mental health education at times depending on what school you're in and where you're at, but yeah, suicide education, but also, you know, positivity around the school, a good attitude, helping each other versus you know, compassion, things like this been kind of an amazing thing to watch because again it's student-led and those and what i've been doing like right after about a year after i lost gracie i did a i did the keynote for their conference and it was the day the pandemic hit so i was supposed to be t- talking to three thousand people in the university instead i talked to eight people in a camera in a library nearby but in that were 
you know, it was kind of a raw speech. It was the first speech I wrote after Gracie died and it was pretty raw, but I listed about 10 different things they could do. They could go and petition, you know, their school board and their administrators to consider these things that would help the mental health of their students. And I said, you know, I'm saying writing signs that say you're doing great is wonderful. Sidewalk chalk outside the school. Brilliant. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying, no, you are in a position of power being in student government, being in a club. You can go and do this. And be, because in a way it's coming in from the, in the, it's coming from the inside. You have to listen to the students. You know, when parents come to a school board meeting, the loudest ones win often, you know, one thing I said earlier though, I want to go back to it. When I was talking about that gentleman who had a, who has an organization that's specifically geared toward prevention and he was doing this event. And I really wish I would have said this back there, but he was doing an event and I came up against him and I said, what about this? How do you feel about prevention? And Eventually, he said this, which I thought was really interesting, and that this is what I've been walking with since, which was prevention isn't really possible until we break the stigma and have conversations. Then prevention's po- prevention is possible. And I said, that is incredibly helpful for you to say thank you, because... Otherwise, people are, that's why prevention looks so sexy. And that's why that stuff on Instagram that says my neck wrinkles are go away in two days. That's also sexy. They also call that snake oil. Both are absolutely not true. They're not detailed. They're not actual game plans. The game plan is, well, I can't do much about the wrinkles because I'm getting old. That's how, that's, that's part of the game. But when it comes to preventing suicide, the first thing is educating, is to make sure that people understand that suicide is death by mental illness. And no, that doesn't mean, I mean, I know plenty of people who are like, nope, my child wasn't mentally ill. This just happened. And I'm like, in my world, I th- you talk that out with somebody, you know, you talk yeah, that out with somebody, talking, right? We have a discussion about that right. because there's part of the stigma in itself, which yep. is mental illness means I'm a lifelong paranoid schizophrenic or fill in the blank. I'm right. not trying to stigmatize schizophrenia, right. but I'm trying to say people go to that worst case scenario of what they've decided crazy is I'm putting that in horrible air quotes and they say mental illness and I know I grappled with that a little while I'm six years in, but there was a period in my grief that I grappled with, well, Alex wasn't mentally ill. He was having circumstantial depression or whatever. I was filling in the blank with different things because he hadn't had a lifelong history of being in a counselor's office or fill in the blank or on meds or all those. And, you know, again, this is where I talk about crawl out from under your own implicit bias because I had to do that for myself. Even though I led with suicide, I had it in his obituary. Alex ended his life on, you know, so I wasn't living under that giant cloak of shame that some people do because their implicit biases are worse, but I did have it. I did have a level of it and I had to face that in the mirror, but you know, that's part of it, right? It's yeah, it is. And I think that, well, classic, you know, how can you educate you know, I have people who are like, I want to talk to my, you know, my students a little bit about, because I do write about trauma a lot. So they're like, how do we do this? I'm like, you have to be willing to talk about trauma and you have to be willing to talk about the outcomes of it. And you have to be willing most of all, right? And this is a tough one for adults. You have to be willing to understand that these young people are more experienced than you are about certain things, right? So I look around and I look at some of the adults in this place and they weren't as close to Gracie as their kids were. That means their kids are more experienced than they are in suicide loss when it comes to this specific loss. And who do you listen to then? You listen to them. 
you know, and that's where we're getting into, you know, I've had a lot of these people come to me and say, oh, my mom wouldn't really let me, you know, grieve or my mom was kind of said, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. You didn't really know her or a million different things. They don't understand. And I am called to schools who have had tragedies, whether it's an active shooter, whether it's a suicide or more than one. And I don't change what I'm saying. I just still show up and go, hey, hi, how's it going? It's me. And this is the deal. And trauma's real. And yep, you got it. And, and this is how you do it. Don't abandon your, you know, don't be like these fools. These people have modeled growing up all wrong for you, including me. I was the same. Like I thought this was what growing up was, but I could never get rid of my inner teenager because she wouldn't freaking leave me alone. And it was because she had so much to say and because she wanted to, my inner teenager just wanted to do what I'm doing now. And so I get to do it now when it comes to suicide. You know, there's times I talk about it usually with younger folks, not necessarily like kids, little kids, you know, but like with younger folks with, uh, or with people who I know have some kind of compassion. What I usually can do as well. And this is the job of a speechwriter. We're fantastic manipulators. It's what we do. We do it on purpose. So when you write a speech, you try and get them nodding. You can get them nodding. Man, I'll tell you what, I've never seen an audience nod so much when I talk about taking my daughter to therapy. In fact, there was a whole speech modeled around right before she died. And so this poor room full of people, (laughs) when they found out she died, must have been heartbroken because I used this sort of, I'm writing, I wrote this entire speech in the waiting room of my daughter's therapist's office. And it was about teen mental, you know, teen mental health and teen, the way we treat teens and everything I've talked about today, and specifically how the culture really devalues and dismisses teens. And they were all nodding. And you can get people nodding so much. There's everybody agrees that the teen mental health is really important until someone dies. Then it's your fault. Then it's then who bullied her. That was one of the first who bullied her. I'm like, well, actually three people bullied her. And that's not the point. Like, honestly, like there's plenty of kids who live through worse bullying or just as bad. You know what I mean? Who it's you're you've been distracted by the media. I'm so sorry. The media has been incorrect and the media. It's funny. You I'm reading the same thing, this the same study, which is a fantastic study. But the one thing it says here is that the media is responsible. I'm just going to find it real quick. 90 some percent of adults believe that the media has a responsibility to educate on about suicide. And I'm there thinking, that's incredible that you think that the media is even equipped at this point to do such a thing because they can't. They're not allowed anymore. We're not allowed in schools anymore to talk about the Holocaust unless we discuss the other side of it. What the heck is that about? That's an incredibly <laughs> strange place to be. And it's we are in a we are in a downward spiral because of the irresponsible and loud voices that have been mistaken for revolutionary voices. They are not right. revolutionary voices. Well, they are. They're not the right, not kind not of the right revolution, right? Way. Exactly. And I appreciate that they want, you know, the chaos and they need all of that. And that I appreciate that they may not know what pedophile means, but they're using it a lot. But that's you know, that's who we're up against. And that's why when it comes to adults, I don't touch this topic. I'll talk about it with young people and I won't necessarily, I won't necessarily talk about the topic. I'll talk around it. I'll just, talk, I'll ask them how they are. And I'll ask them, I'll ask them, you know, what do they think about therapy? You got any friends in therapy? I get it. Or I'll say about, Hey man, I had therapy yesterday. And the amount of kids that look at me, Melissa, I'm like, Oh, you see a therapist. Like I went to like, like the Taj Mahal or something. I'm like, yes, I've been going to therapy since a long time. Yeah, actually it helps. But what do you talk about? I'm like stuff. And then we get into it and it's unbelievable to see those kids who really didn't 
think the therapy was available, that this doesn't exist. And that if you go to therapy, you must be really messed up. I'm like, not really. No, it's just, I have a lot of stress. And I'm just trying to figure out my way through, you know, some traumatic things that happened to me when I was a kid. Um, and that's the thing, you know, people, here's the one, I'll leave you with this one. This is fun. I was writing a speech the other week and I found this interesting statistic. I like, I was writing for school librarians who have been through a lot in the last year, millennials have had the police called on them for ordering books and doing their jobs. And so I was writing this, this list of statistics to remind educators that they're still working for the same kids they've always worked for and that they're still working for kids who've been through hell. And so I started listing all the statistics. How many are self-harming? How many are depressed? How many have mental illness? How many are, the fact that one in four kids has mental illness, the fact that 70% of teen mental illness goes undiagnosed and untreated, all of these different things. And I'm going to the homeless. Right now we have the biggest homeless child. I don't know if you know this, the children home, homeless children problem that we have right now is the largest we've ever had in America, one for every 30 children. I'm naming all these stats. It's like a whole page of stats, but at the very end, and I'm looking them up at the same time and cross-checking them and citing them and all this. The last one was that 60, what was it? 65, 65 I think, percent of adults report experiencing abuse as children. Interesting, because the very first one was 25% of children are abused. Interesting, because 65% of adults report being abused. And I said, this is the discrepancy, which shows you how much bullshit you've been fed. Because we can't even talk about this stuff. The discrepancy that's there shows us how broken we are and how much as a society, as a people, we have American trauma. It doesn't matter actually even where you come from now. It doesn't matter where you fit on the demographic chart. It doesn't matter how old you are, what race you are. It doesn't matter anything. As Americans, we are dealing with trauma. And it absolutely just doubled in the last, I'm going to say, six to eight years. It absolutely increased. And you're looking at suicide rates going up. And you're looking at suicide, age of suicide loss victims get younger. Okay. And you know, you're looking at these obvious things. And in the middle, you've got a bunch of chaos agents making things harder to do. And I'm not sure how to deal with that. But in the meantime, I go around that big chaos thing and I get straight straight into talking to young people about those sorts of statistics, asking them straight up, what do you think about this? Why do you think more adults report when you don't? Why? How many of you are quiet? Right. So I was supposed to say one in four, but now suddenly it's at 65%. Well, that's more than half. That's nearly three in four. Which one of you isn't talking? You know, and I know for me, I didn't say a word about like my early childhood trauma. Most people don't know about it at all yet. But I mean, I didn't say a word about it until I was 48 years old. So interesting for sure. You know, I'd like to try to. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Try to wrap this up if we can in a way that, that, makes sense for what's currently going on in my brain, which probably doesn't make a lot of sense at all in general. But in thinking about the fact that you've been talking to youth and dealing with teenage and youth mental health for a very long time before, you know, like you said, you were writing a speech about it while Gracie was in the therapist. So realizing that this is something you were doing before, you still have a heart for it now. At some point in you talking, my mom brain, my mom heart probably went to a place of thinking, I'd love to hear her speak if even for a moment to 
did you take a break from that at all? Is it more motivated now? Is it the same amount of motivation? And what do you do to care for yourself? And I know that's like just I just tossed like a bunch of disconnected and yet connected things at you. But I was thinking, I know that a lot of moms that listen would love to know because it's that whole how do you still care for yourself and do I don't want to portray ever unless it was true, which I don't know how it could be that here's a fixed grieving mom. Look, all she did is she goes out and she talks to teens and now she's okay. She's fixed her grief. She's good. Where do you find a place for you? Is this your outlet for your grief or what do you, I mean, I know, you know what I'm trying to, I do exactly what you're trying to do. All right. So I don't remember 2019 at all. And it wasn't because of any kind of like, there was no substance. It wasn't like substances. It was just that, and I think all grieving moms right now. I mean, I know my group does last night. We're all like, nope, we don't remember the year after at all. You think you're going to while you're in it, by the way. I remember, I think back now, as I'm filling out a journal about that first year at year six, and I'm thinking, oh shit, I completely forgot. Some things are just gone. Some things I can pull back now if I really, you know, try. And because I've healed from some of it and things like that. But yeah, we think we're going to remember it in the time. And later we look back and go, yeah. I didn't remember anything. I was doing my taxes for 2019 and 2020. And by complete fluke, I had to keep, I had to, well, I don't have a traditional job. So I'm glad for that because I have watched other people go like right back to work. And I don't know how they did that. And my heart, oh my gosh, just, but I was able to kind of take a break. But I also had two books slated for publication that year. So I had to go on tour. Now, not big tour, but I had to go to certain things twice, which means I had to be surrounded by my peers who were very loving, but also I wasn't in any state. Like I had that total brain fog. Like I grief brain, I would just lose a thought. So I, to this day, I still can't do any interviews. It doesn't matter. Except I think the New York times is the only one (laughs) that insists on, you know, talking versus me writing or having pre-written questions so that I can read my responses. If I don't, I will lose my thought, my train of thought. Maya will never get back to being the old me. My brain is not the same. I suffered because a lot of trauma. It's trauma, right. As yes, I say, I because of, it's yeah. trauma. I have tried to explain that to moms all the yeah. time. The yeah, trauma that, that you've massive. experienced, massive. if you'd been hit in the head with a boulder, somebody would expect you yes. to have the trauma, but the research has shown that's the same trauma we have, absolutely. right? It's absolutely. And we have with those secondary and tertiary losses and the secondary and tertiary, like all that other complication because it's suicide, because it's suicide. And I'm going to say that straight up because in that comes the, like the more sturdy blame and the rumors and then the fences and the feelings that we have that, and then our own blame, come on, mm-hmm. we have our own mm-hmm. stuff that we bring with us. Right. And all this stuff. So, so for me, so I you took, lost a year, I lost <laughs> I like, Let a me year, get but I did track. stuff during that year. Yeah. I remember paying taxes and being like, was when was I in Atlanta? I don't even remember being in like, what? I didn't remember being in any of the places I was. I don't remember any of that, but I had to continue writing a book. That was really hard. I changed everything about it and continued. It took me years. But no, I am not by any, no, I have complicated grief because of what happened at the funeral and what happened, what some other chaos agents were doing inside of the family and stuff, which is how they wanted it. And I know them uh, intimately and I, whatever, but like, no, when I go to audiences now, and I only just got back on the road this spring. So of course the pandemic for me, it was 2018, then 2019 I lost and boom, we were, (laughs) we were done. We had the pandemic. So my work kind of went out the window. So I've only just gotten back into schools now. And it's different now. It's no difference when I don't talk about anything 
differently. I mean, I always add a few bits and pieces here and there. I'm always, I guess I am pushing self-compassion more than I usually, than I used to. I'm really concentrating on it, especially because I know that in some of the schools I'm going to, their parents have come to the school board and said, this woman is coming to the school board. She's going to indoctrinate our children with anti-racist ideas. And I'm like, yeah, I know that's a real bummer that I'm really only just going to tell everybody to be cool. That's it. I'm going to be like, be cool, be nice. There you go. That's it. And if that's me indoctrinating your kids with anti-racist ideas, well, then I'm real sorry about it. But that is, that's kind of what I'm concentrating on. As for, does it, did it cure me? Oh, good God, no. I still wonder to this day, Melissa, what's the day that's going to make me lose it? I just said this to my group last night. I said, one day I think I'm going to lose my shit and end up face down on the road outside. And I'm just going to lose it because I've been keeping it together. I mean, I know I didn't, I, I lost Gracie in 2018. I got divorced in 2021, but that was our, that had started in 16. And so, you know, Gracie wasn't the only person with mental illness that I was taking care of. And my anxiety was so high from that sort of stuff. I don't have it anymore. Anxiety has gone. So that's like, if I look better and if people say to me, oh, you look great. It's not because I'm cured. It's because I'm finally in a space where I'm safe, right? And so that's cool. So now I'm in a safe space. And then the rest is just going to be a lifelong journey. Now, there is no such thing as a cure. But when it comes to going out and talking to the community, you know, be careful. And, you know, but also when you can be bold, like those days that I can, I don't have much of a reach on Twitter, but when I tweet, I make sure it says exactly what I want to say. And it's suicide education 101. And it's okay. It's mental illness, you know, awareness month here's my, you know, here's my thread for the year and I'll throw it out there. And I always get a little scared because someone's going to come in and say one little thing. I love how people do this. Like you got this one little thing wrong. I'm like, nah, I didn't really, but you had to tell me, but thanks as a grieving mom, I really appreciate yes. it. <laughs> right. You know, but it's also, that is a symptom of the illness of our culture. Our yeah. culture is very unwell right now. And I don't see, and I want to have hope, right? And I want to give hope to these kids, but they, and I think they see how sick this place is, but at the same time, you know, the solutions being handed to them aren't always realistic. You know, sometimes it's pray more and I appreciate praying. I really do. I really do respect people who pray, but that is not going to change this culture. It's not. We have to change the culture ourselves. And we have to recognize that we have to learn how to be humble and admit that we've done some things wrong. And that means everybody. And that's going to be impossible in this climate. Again, it's, I can't, I don't see it. So for now, I don't know. No, I'm not cured. I'm not, I'm not over it. I'll never be over it. And will any of us? No. The closer I get to starting a foundation, I'm on, you know, like I said, year four, I'd say it'd be another two years before I figure it out. But I think what I'm going to do is because I've, because it gives you perspective in your community. So I've had this perspective of this community. I always had a pride flag outside my house. And when it got stolen and vandalized, it really hurt Gracie. In fact, you can't see any listeners, but behind me is Gracie's original pride flag because, and it's got holes in it. And she was very upset by that over and over again. She was part of starting the GSA at the high school. She had a boyfriend, but she believed in all of being an, an ally, of being yourself. And none of this really mattered, you know? And one of the interesting things to watch in this town is how many pride flags have gone up since Gracie died. And every year I, you know, I give her a count and like, Hey, happy pride month, Gracie. There's four more on our street. You'd be so thrilled, you know, and you get down to this sort of, these people are arguing over things like 
pride flags or gayness or Black Lives Matter stickers or flags on a teacher's laptop. There are bigger problems. Their kids died in your community. Could have been your kid. No, it couldn't have been my kid. Yes, it could have. And if that's the one thing we can teach, because I taught these people, their kids write me letters. My parents are very anti-suicide. Well, sure, aren't we all? (laughs) When it comes to my community and my foundation, what I think I'm going to end up doing is trying to form a foundation that helps form safe spaces in conservative communities. Because what the queer kids have to go through in this town, and many towns like it, is unacceptable. And parents are teaching their children. And it's the parents oftentimes. I mean, the people that came to Pride, those were all men, those were all grown men, screaming at my child, screaming at little children who are gay and screaming at adults who are gay and all about going to hell. It's like, dude, that's in a book. I appreciate and I respect your book, but don't think that book has anything to do with my life. Or why are you screaming at children? Did the book tell you to scream at children? <laughs> like, you know, I can't figure it out. But well, logic doesn't apply. So there's that, Amy. I mean, and that same, no... yeah, <laughs> that, that same book is the same book telling me to judge us. I'll tell you what, that's the number one people that judge me are the people who have that as back of them. That's their strength. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but you don't understand faith the way I understand faith after what I've been through. You don't understand faith. And if you did, you'd understand it's about compassion, understanding and changing and opening your mind, not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You know, I'm so thankful for this conversation, but I'm even more thankful that you are doing the work that you're doing and that you're advocating for young people because that's, you know, just in a nutshell. Yeah. Uh, to be for them to be heard and for them to hear themselves and all of the things. So, and thanks for sharing a little bit of Gracie with us. Thanks for asking me. And I know we went like 9,000 different directions. We knew this was going to happen and we knew it was going to be long, but if ever we want to like super focus and I can figure out how to do that. (laughs) Well, you know, know. I'm probably not going anywhere. You're not, you're going to start a foundation at some point. And you know, when I'm in season 10, (laughs) whatever it is. I know you're I know you're walking into an anniversary soon enough and I just want to say I don't know I'm thinking of you. We're all holding hands out here. That's the thing about it. The yeah. more moms I meet, the more and that's the thing. The more moms I meet, the more I wonder how those other people can ever think that it's not going to like that it's it can't a, possibly it, happen to them, right? Right. It's just so impossible. Like some of the some of the people, and you meet them by a complete fluke. I've met some woman on Instagram. I followed her because she does great yoga, <laughs> and then I find out that you know, same year that I lost Gracie, she lost her son, and it's just like positive together, all these things. But her son wasn't okay, and it's that simple. And it's. I don't know. It's weird. One of the weird things as well, I think about this a lot. Remember when somebody was like, oh, you know, thank God I found that thing out about Robin Williams. I said, what'd you find out about Robin Williams? Oh, well, you know, he didn't kill himself because he was depressed. He killed himself because he found out he had a disease. I was like, how does that, how does that make it better? Right. Like, well, you know, because like, because what, well, because he was so funny and like, and in the end it was like, so because he had a disease, is that how we're supposed to deal with finding out that we had a terrible disease? Is that normal? Like, reaction well it was more acceptable ah more acceptable interesting interesting and i've left it at that i actually haven't spoken it out loud since i had the conversation but it was just one of those moments where i'm like that's still where we are let's move forward it's a tragedy that robin williams died like period period 
it's sad. And I feel for his family very much so. And, and his family now has trauma that other people won't understand unless it happens to them. And yeah, that's it. You know, there's, it's not a respected loss. And I think that's one of the things we have to learn, you know? Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. If we don't, if we don't end this, we never will end this. I'll go go now. (laughs) Get out of here. Oh my gosh. I think my next meeting's in a minute. Look, take it easy. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank Thank you. you for even yes. Considering this and take it easy. Be nice to yourself. You too. And I hope everyone listening does as well. Thanks, Amy. Take care, Melissa. You too. Grievers, it is my hope that from today, you will take that which serves you and simply leave the rest. I would love to connect with you. And the best way to do that is to start out on my website, where the first thing you'll find is a video recorded message from me. And then from there, you can find everything I offer, the online Zoom support groups, the books I've written, ways to connect for the podcast, and an entire resource library assembled to help all suicide loss grievers find the resources that they need to help them along their healing journey. Please go to theleftoverpieces.com. From there, I hope that we can connect and I hope that you too can discover that we truly are better together. If anything that you've heard in today's episode resonates with you, I would ask that you please subscribe to get notified every week of my new episodes and then take a moment to rate and review me on Apple Podcasts so that more grievers like us can find this podcast and this community. It is from my own experience of finding myself sitting amid the leftover pieces of my own shattered heart that I can tell you that while it seems impossible in the early days, it is possible to put those pieces back together and be okay again. And every week, we'll be right here, providing more comfort, hope, and community. So until next week, I'll sign off today with some words from one of my Alex's favorites, Peter Pan. Never say goodbye, because goodbye means going away, and going away means forgetting. Grievers, no one here is forgetting. Talk soon.